Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Najah. And in this podcast, we try to shed light on the studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. Today's episode is going to be an exploration of the way colonialism and orientalism have influenced fashion and fashion illustration through the ages and the way it still permeates the current fashion culture, with runway shows inspired by the quote-unquote Orient and Japanese and Arabian and vaguely exotic and quote-unquote ethnic aesthetics. The ways Orientalism shapes and inspires fashion and designers is alive and well in the fashion landscape. I just want to take the time to thank Saffron at Synthetic Pearl, a beauty and fashion critic who suggested this topic to me. So thank you for the lovely idea, which led me through some glorious paths of research, which has been extremely fun as usual. And please check her out. I linked her socials in the description down below and be sure to keep up with whatever she does. Of course, this topic is one that is never-ending and ever-growing, and so this will be only but a snapshot of a very broad theme. And while I will do my utmost best to give a good overview, at least, of the subject, and the way it is still incredibly relevant, please do forgive me if I can touch on every aspect of it. Passion is something that truly fascinates me. I love clothing, and I love beautiful things, and I love well-crafted garments. And I think fashion is one of those things that says so much, not only about oneself, but also about a particular era, a certain place, and a certain culture. It says so much in one glance about people's perception of themselves, status, and social norms. And this is why, for me, I absolutely adore fashion as a craft but also as a reflection of culture, societies, and mores. Fashion is an art. Dress is an art. But also the history of it, the same way as visual art is, says infinitely more about ourselves than we think it does. This subject is an extensive one and could very well be the topic of a many entire book and has been but we'll nonetheless try to go as far as we can on this topic together. So let's begin, my loves. Semiotically speaking, clothing is one of the first, if not the first, visual cue that we have that truly conveys certain important hints of cultural and social significance. It is the first element that we see that communicates something to the person who looks at us. Before we even start speaking, the garments we wear and we have chosen to wear are already saying something about us. The way our clothes communicate and send a message has evolved and slowly but surely morphed through time. The way a black dress used to signify mourning in a certain context and still does 
However, this black dress does not have the same meaning depending on the era and the place. After all, in certain regions of the world or religious practices, the use of white symbolizes mourning or death, and so dress is part of a cultural understanding that we aren't even necessarily aware that we are taking part in. Up until the 1990s, anyone who had an office job had to wear a very formal outfit. Someone who was the CEO of a company was always wearing a complete suit and tie, and would probably never be caught dead in an ensemble that was anything less than extremely polished, and this would be worn every day when they were going to work. And this was simply part of the cultural norms that were part of the modern world. However, the signifier of someone's position, social status, and career has morphed through the years with the rise of business casual and the way society as a whole becomes less formalized. We can definitely see a shift in the way people have been dressed since that time. And this is not a judgment of value, simply an assessment of the situation at hand. For example, when it comes to the tech industry, you can see men in t-shirts, jeans, and flip-flops who are now occupying the top position in the company. And so that formalism that used to exist no longer is. The power business suits of the 1980s with its gigantic shoulders was a symbol of power and a visual assertiveness. Meanwhile, the outfit of the 21st century tech mogul says that they do not have the time to care about fashion, that they are above that effort and care, and will either be wearing the same thing every day until they die the way Steve Jobs did with his understated black turtleneck, or with the very nerdy college boy aesthetic that a lot of these tech entrepreneurs, CEOs are wearing with sweatpants and t-shirts that seem to really need to go into the wash, despite the fact that they are millionaires or billionaires. I have said that it wasn't going to be a judgment of value, however, maybe a little bit. Anyway, so clothing, as much as it is simply a garment that has the primary function of covering your body and the form of self-expression, is also a status symbol, and the significance of those status symbols and the shape they take is definitely influenced by the dynamics of a world that is still undeniably based on structures of imperialism and colonialism. Those concepts have shaped our world so thoroughly that every single facet of the modern world has been influenced by them in a way or another. In a society where the balance of powers is still between the colonial power and the colonized nation, a relationship that has been established long ago and which is still incredibly pertinent. Today, however, the existence of imperialism has taken on a more insidious camouflage. After all, everyone will tell you that the age of empire is over. Nonetheless, it is not as true as we wish it were, and the use of barely paid labor in poorer non-Western countries I would say that the tenets of imperialism are all alive and well. It's not because it's not as obvious as it used to be that it is totally gone. The rules of the game have changed, however the game is still on. Fashion has been a world where craftsmanship and art 
has only to existed hand in hand, and even though the system of fashion the way it currently exists, has only been in place only since the 19th century, the beginning of the industrial era truly did start in it, at least in the way it is currently defined, an haute couture being usually defined as being started by Charles Frederick Worth with his House of Worth, even though this particular fact is very much debated because people have been dressing themselves for ages, so why it is only now that it is being called fashion and haute couture, and everything before that only being referred to dress history. And the reason why it goes very much hand in hand with the industry and capitalism. After all, people have been dressed and clothed for centuries and centuries before that, and people have always taken care of how they dress and appear. And I think personally it is reductive to scale down our understanding of the world of fashion to the way we have been defining it in modern terms. After all, there is so much more to explore. While clothing and garments beforehand were all hand-sewn, bespoke and made to the taste of the client, and the art of sewing and mending was a regular and common occurrence, because clothing and fabric was extremely precious, in a way that we, in our world of disposable fashion, will never truly be able to comprehend. And so it is once that capitalism and industrialism entered the world of garment mating, that it suddenly now was fashion. Fashion is often considered as art, but it's not quite that. I personally do think of fashion as an art. I'm very much of the opinion that every creative endeavor can be art, whether it is a sculpture, embroidery, an oil painting, and of course not limited to those, whether it's the garden, whether it's cooking, anything can be art. However, fashion is in a very particular position compared to these other artistic fields of art, especially the more classic ones. Because an article of clothing has to be worn to be a piece of clothing. Otherwise, is it really a garment or is it more of a textile sculpture? Apart from the very specific situation where you are a nudist and you somehow have never worn any clothing if your whole entire life. Every single one of us interacts with the world of fashion. After all, I only have to refer to that absolutely groundbreaking scene in The Devil Wears Prada. And the scene, which is absolutely iconic, where Miranda Priestley, the head of the magazine, talks about how everything in fashion is connected to each other and you cannot escape the decisions of fashion. And even if you think you don't care about it, even if you think it doesn't matter to you, it will still affect you. It truly manages to capture the fact that even though fashion can seem frivolous and superficial, fashion is something that we are all part of, no matter what. We all wear our little outfits and we try to conform with the current trends. That fact says something about us, but if we also try to really navigate our fashion style on the margins and out of the norms, well this also says something about us. There is no way to opt out of the fashion game. The clothing we choose to wear and not to wear, the way we dress, 
is a way in which we interact with not only ourselves, but the society around us. The art of garment making has been something extremely important to all societies and is something that continues to drive commerce and trade today. After all, fashion is one of the biggest industries in the world. Before fashion and dress got altered by industrialization and capitalism, it was one of the most expensive things you could own, where every single garment took time to create, and the labor was compensated. And even though the process of making clothing have been sped up, they do still have to be individually made by people. Every piece of clothing that is created is, as recording of this podcast, continues to be made by a skilled worker. And this is extremely important to understand as we try to ponder all the way clothing interacts with commerce and art. Orientalism is a book by Edward Said, an amazing Palestinian author and theorist, published in 1978 that unpacks and unravels all the way the Western world interacts with the concept of the Orient. It is a seminal text of cultural critique and so, let's dive deep into Ammu Edwards' writing. Edward Said is the key figure of the post-colonialist analysis, especially with this fundamental book, and I would also be remiss to not mention his book, Culture and Imperialism, which are still to this day absolutely essential in understanding the way colonialism, culture, art, and the global world intersects. The way othering and fetishizing still plays a significant role in dehumanizing non-Western culture and downplaying their humanities and skills to the world at large. The Orient, as understood to the Western imagination, is thus a total fabrication that was based on a desire to create a narrative foil to the Western identity, on which to build and frame Western culture. And so, our understanding of otherness and the way the image of the Oriental is created is a fabricated image, a fictional product of imperialism. Dress and costumes is one of the initial elements that is taken notice of it, an ultra-awareness of the differences between the West and the Orient that Orientalism wants to disconstruct. After all, the way we dress is, as said earlier, usually the first thing we have to confront when facing someone else. The textile and garments of the quote-unquote East are both elements that reinforce the idea of the mystique and the hidden treasures behind the veil that is given as a narrative in Western countries. I mean, there is only to see how white people distrust veiled women. I'd know as a hijabi myself. So colonialism and imperialism have always been and continue to be a driving force of fashion. After all, imperialism is a facet of the world exchange, albeit not a voluntary one from one of both parties. But while the colonial power forces its own cultural hegemony on its colonies, these colonies will also, in turn, influence the culture of that colonial power. Or maybe it would be more akin to cultural appropriation in this context, 
after all, a genuine cultural exchange can only happen on the basis of equality and sincerity, when there is a power imbalance as one in an imperialist nation with its colonies, that genuine exchange of culture, knowledge, and art simply disappears and it can easily turn into cultural violence. After all, one only has to look at the history of Indian textile and garment-making production to understand the horror and the ways imperialism have shaped that industry and the ways the Western idea of the Orient, of the beautiful Oriental and Indian textile that was hidden away in the Indian subcontinent. There is only to think about the world of muslin and chins and the mask, and once you lift that curtain, you discover that fashion can be a world of unseen violence. Because after all, so many beautiful things have such an ugly story. The history of Dhaka Muslin is one such story that is absolutely tragic in its cruelty and its consequences both for the people who suffered through it, most importantly, but also for the loss of culture and of the techniques that had been perfected for centuries. This muslin was made in what is now Bangladesh and it was made through an extremely elaborate process that had up to 16 steps and used an extremely rare cotton that only grew on the banks of the Medina River. Once again, I want to remind everyone that cloth back then was extremely valuable, and this type of muslin that was extremely time-consuming and demanded very meticulous and skilled labor was even more so. The cloth was apparently so fine, delicate, and transparent that it was nicknamed woven air and those fabrics that were bought by the English and that used to be created to form saris were now used to sew those late Georgian-era dresses that were inspired by the classical silhouette of ancient trees and these fabrics were so translucent that they were considered as a little bit racy and were caricatured in the journals of the times. So from the 1790s to roughly the 1810s, so the Jane Austen period for the intellectuals in the chat, European fashion was mostly influenced by classical fashion. By that draped look and translucent visuals inspired by ancient Greek and Roman statues. Muslin was thus the fabric of choice for these late Georgian dresses and the exquisite and extremely expensive Dhaka muslin was the one that higher classes went to. However, this specific type of muslin that required the highest of specialized tills and were made only in certain specific Bengali villages. And so when it comes to Dhaka muslin, it is important to understand that while current muslin has a thread count of 40 to 80, that version of muslin that existed so long ago had a 800 to 1200 thread counts. So the quality of the cloth is just so incredibly fine and superior to anything that is being currently made. And the technique with which this fabric was created simply disappeared. And by the 20th century, the only remaining specimens of this particular type of muslins 
were the ones found in museums. So basically what happened was a pure destruction of the trade of Tatra muslin by the East India Company in the late 18th century. By controlling the whole process and exploiting the workers, by paying them less and putting them into debt, and then the British began to create muslin on their own, at a way cheaper price, and cheaper quality of course, thus destroying for good the Bengali trade. And so imperialism leads to an erasure of history, but also of skills and knowledge and, and the shrinking the financial independence of non-Western craftsmen. This was extreme targeted violence in all ways possible. I think at least this one story has a bit of a happy ending, as Bengali initiatives are being taken to bring back those long forgotten techniques and fabrics and are having quite a lot of success. There is this portrait of Lord Byron in Albanian dress by Thomas Phillips in 1813, in that one portrait. But not only of him, a lot of British aristocrats and upper-class people who could afford to commission a painting were being painted and represented in exotic, vaguely oriental garb. I admit feeling stumped at what they seemingly wanted to communicate. Maybe a sense of fantasy and exoticism, or maybe some worldliness. Or maybe they simply thought it looked cool, which it kind of does. I mean, it doesn't make what they did any kind of right. But it is just proof, after all, of the global reach of the British Empire that these type of garments, fabrics and quote-unquote aesthetics, were being brought from the corners of the empire to the headquarters of the British Isles. This was simply a mirror reflection of empire, after all. The Kashmiri shawl, for example, is a way in which this dialogue between the empire and the colonies was being held. It is a garment that became a symbol of status and of wealth in the UK, but only on the back of exploited and colonized workers. A while back, I have read an article about French fashion being inspired by Algerian traditional garments and techniques such as the fetla, the traditional embroidery of gold thread and the shape of the vet of the teretro. I will link this article in the, either in the description down below or on the social media platforms. And this article is in French, however it is yet another facet of French colonialism. But one that is more insidious than the obvious consequences and violent cruelties of imperialism. Orientalism and the profiteering of ethnical symbols and cultural traditions and craftsmanship is just yet another way that erases the contribution and complexities of colonized countries, cultures and past and ends up flattening them into a one-dimensional and simplistic understanding of that culture. And this is how Orientalism often works, by simplifying the other culture in one that is both mysterious and unfathomable, draped in silks and smoke, and yet those people are also barbarian and backwards and need the actual civilized white people to teach them how to do things. Imperialism and Orientalism made it that these two statements are both true at once. But you know, it's not. And once you strip 
people out of its culture. You can sell it back to them. Capitalism is, after all, simply an advanced form of colonialism. This kind of cultural appropriation strips those symbols and motifs of their cultural significance to those that it matters to, and is reduced to a simple visual artifact. It becomes a relic of something maybe mysterious and unknown, but otherwise empty and devoid of any significant true meaning. I want to be clear that when I talk about Orientalism, it is not necessarily a judgment in value, albeit, maybe, a tiny bit. But it is mostly simply an objective phenomenon that can be analyzed, understood, and comprehended within this global socio-historical context. However, I do think it is important to acknowledge that cultural exchanges and sharing happen in a very organic and respectful and thoughtful way. However, this cannot happen when the relationships of powers are so unbalanced. It's important to remember that so many of the textile terms and vocabulary comes from non-Western languages. Culture, words, and language travel. But it is interesting how so many of the textile terms come from other cultures, from muslin to silk and taffetas and cashmere. There is something about the grandiose and perceived mystery and luxurious of the East that is extremely attractive. Until it loses its cluster and becomes a normal and commonplace part of fashion and material culture. After all, Paisley has lost all of its cultural meaning and is now only one of those 1970s-ish patterns, when it was originally a pattern created in the Kingdom of Kashmir during the 16th century, and is now ubiquitous for New Age moms. And so, the presence of Orientalism in the world of dress and fashion is extremely pervasive. It's important, once again, to understand that Orientalism as the way the West, once again, quote-unquote on that word, distinguishes itself and creates its own identity and culture by othering the East. Therefore, there is also a dimension of appropriating the culture of the other and making it theirs to further establish the Western identity, contrasting it to an identity that they could use and discard much as a costume or a meaningless accessory. The aesthetic of the ancient East, once again, quote-unquote, was a definite inspiration and source of creativity in European dress and art in the late 19th century, after the opening up of Japan's borders to the Western world in 1853. Which, by the way, I will mention that it wasn't done willingly, because it was forced by the Americans. Unsurprising is all I will say. And so the era of Japanism and chinoiserie in the late 19th century influenced art in a major way in the Western world. After all, notorious artists such as Claude Monet and Van Gogh, whose names everyone knows, were deeply influenced by Japanese prints. But this influence went to the world of decor and fashion as well. Paintings of women in relaxed poses and dresses that are going against the extremely rigid fashion of the era, often wearing kimonos or garments very reminiscent of it, often in their own homes, in lounging poses that feel decadent and slightly debauched, 
And I do think that there is something of the seductive and dangerous orient to it all. And so this influence of the Japanese chimono, less restrictive on the body, can be seen in several works of art in the last two decades of the 19th century, as well as in the beginning of the 20th century. This coincides with the dress reform movement of the late 19th century that wanted to suggest more comfortable clothing and to loosen up the Victorian silhouettes as a form of emancipation from what they considered a very restrictive form of garment. In the 1920s, Orientalism was an extremely prevalent influence on fashion. I have talked a bit about it in the third episode of the second season, Art Nouveau and Art Deco, an early 20th century affair, where I do discuss and introduce this subject already. And so in the 1920s, an era that was extremely influenced by the interest of the Orient that was in vogue during that era, from the East Asian influences to the quote-unquote Arabian influences, the inspiration from foreign locales was unmistakable on the fashion creation of the 1920s. Paul Poiret, a French couturier of the early 20th century, was extremely popular and his designs were hugely inspired by visions of the East using foreign fabrics in his creations. This is also the era that saw the rise of Egyptology and the fascination for ancient Egypt, which had a huge cultural impact on Western society as a whole. As much as you can say that archaeology was for the rise of knowledge, there is a good chunk of imperialism and colonialism in this. After all, so much of that field was developed by Western academics in non-Western countries. We should not forget that Egypt was a British colony in that time, and so the relationship of powers is one that is extremely uneven, and there is something a bit perverse about the way imperialism advances that non-Western countries do not unearth and study their own history, as well as the argument often being given that, well, Western academics and researchers simply know better and have better resources while ignoring the reason that Western countries often have more money and resources is because they got it all on the back of their colonies due to the imperial project. And it is wild to me to ignore all of the physical work and labor done by indigenous people on these dead sites, and how often it is due to the knowledge of these people that these deaths and discoveries even happened. This is an argument that is also often given when Western museums refuse to give back artifacts to their original countries. And if those institutions were truly and sincerely dedicated to the cause of decolonizing museums and cultural establishments, more concrete action would be taken instead of perpetual lip service. When it comes to clothing, after all, they communicate a very specific message and while I think that there is space to subvert and overturn those meanings, there are certain implications that I think are important to think about. I do prefer to assume good faith in people. However, as much as people do like to say vintage aesthetics and not vintage value, which is a statement I genuinely agree with and I hugely love thrifting and shopping for vintage clothing, it is a sustainable way of buying clothing after all. 
And wearing vintage clothing does not signify that you have traditional or conservative politics and ideas, far from it. But the concept of wearing specifically 1920s colonial-adjacent clothing on an archaeological date in Egypt, knowing all of the history that this brings, honestly, to me, there is something so callous and insensitive about it, and I think that just wearing clothing reminiscent of the colonial archaeological enterprise in Egypt to go working on archaeological digs and perpetuating this project while you are an American is just pea brain behavior. This is just about a specific person. I will not say the name of that person. However, I just wanted to put it out there since we're talking about fashion and orientalism and the way it intersects with imperialism. The history of ancient Egypt definitely is also part of Orientalist aesthetics, even if it is not an Orientalism that targets a living culture. However, the way people depict the Roman and the ancient Greeks versus the oh-so-mysterious Egyptians are very telling. It is only them that have this sort of mystical and arcane treatment applied to them in the cultural narrative. Unlike ancient Greece and Rome, whose history and records are being treated in a more rational and historical manner, there seems to be an added touch of the mystery and the occult in the perception of ancient Egypt. During the past few decades, especially during the 90s and the early 2000s, there is a definite presence of runway fashion shows and photography editorials in haute couture that are Arabian-themed or Asian-themed and were absolutely ludicrous, even though I have to admit that the fashion industry has gotten more sensitive to these issues in the past few years. There is still so much work still to be done, and not enough returning with those specific collections, even if they were created by beloved designers. I will say that even though I fully believe it is because the subject of diversity and inclusion has been a popular and relevant one in the mainstream conversation, I am maybe a bit cynical, but I can't help but feel that if these issues were suddenly out of fashion, the industry would definitely go back to making exotic-themed photoshoots again, using a certain culture or ethnicity as a basis for an aesthetic or costume. Without understanding any of the real significance behind it, it is not a genuine cultural exchange, but simple cultural appropriation. The 1997 Fall and Winter Christian Dior by John Galliano collection was called the Geisha collection, which is ironic considering it's not even inspired by Japanese geishas, but by Chinese fashion. And yet this is what Orientalism does. It flattens all kinds of different cultures, regional differences and particularities into one single idea of what the vague East is. This concept, as much as it is harmful, is unhelpful aesthetically and historically speaking as well, because it simplifies the complexities and beauty of non-Western cultures for the profit of capitalism. 
In the past few years, there has been a significant use uh, in fashion of such symbols such as the hand of Fatima, the Nazar, the yin and yang, and these symbols have been used from high fashion runways to fast fashion and have become almost ubiquitous. Faith and spirituality are incredibly personal and intimate, but I do think there is something to be said about the use of spiritual imagery in a world that feels devoid of spirituality. And maybe to counterattack the emptiness that modern capitalist society, by using those spiritual and religious symbols. Of course there is something to be said about these symbols being foreign to the Western world. This is simply an extension of Orientalism and the construction of a Western, mostly Christian, slightly atheist identity. In contrast to what they perceive to be the mystical and esoteric foreign other, foreign dance, with huge quotes because foreign to who? The concept of foreignness is also one to be deconstructed because once again the question is always compared to who. It is always depending on the perspective that is being seen. It is the question of who is considered to be the basis of neutrality and the point of view. Everything is subjective and so even our notion of neutrality in scientific research are biased in one way or another and so the methodological research in art history can also be. It is important to deconstruct those patterns of thoughts and always try to understand what is the perspective and what is being looked at. Using these symbols as simple patterns and motifs without acknowledging at least their spiritual and cultural significance simply feels like a shallow pastiche of meaning and substance. Those accessories and collections want to have a real feeling behind it, a sort of connectedness with the universe, and want to make it seem authentic, and not as empty and shallow as it is in the end. Fashion is an injuring physical remain of empire, and the consequences of it continue to burn in our psyche to this day. After all, if fashion is so intertwined with imperialism and capitalism, and essential to be able to understand culture, our interpersonal interactions and our social mores, then surely it means that the presence of empire is still felt in our everyday lives, as a potent reminder of the cruelty that has been committed and continues to be committed, and the blood that has been shed on the altar of beautiful fashion. Orientalism is part of the past and current Western fashion world, true colonization and imperialism, to a point where certain fabrics, cuts and garments that were intrinsically part of a certain cultural experience have been assimilated and are now ubiquitous in fashion. From paisley patterns to kimonos and muslin, fashion and colonialism have a story that is more intertwined than one might think at first glance. And yet, I do still adore fashion and clothes. And this is why I'm being so harsh on it, because I think it is important to dissect and understand the things we do love, so we can hopefully do better as we go. And on this, my darling listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Imaginarium. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser-known subject of art history and visual culture. 
If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons. Meili, Chonli Capecinuyan, Sam Hurst, Natalie Sladet, Jameson Hollybert, Jad, Amanen, and Carter J. Tain. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you'll think will like it. And as the YouTuber says, like and subscribe and give us a good rating if you did enjoy it. As always, all the relevant images will also be on all of our social platforms at Imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated and produced by yours truly, Nada. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon. Mm-hmm.